Well, let's pray before we start. Thank you, Lord, for the treasure which is your word. And certainly the psalmist said such. That, uh, your word is a treasure, Lord. We, we thank you for it. We thank you, Lord, for in it is revealed all of your promises and your instruction for us, Lord, for life and godliness. We, we look to you, Lord. We want to understand these things and understand the unfolding of it down through history that we can have complete confidence in your word. We thank you for your mercies and your grace. Pray you be with us in hearing and in speaking. For Jesus' sake, amen. The more I have studied this subject, um, the more ignorant I feel. <laughs> And when I heard that Victor was uh, listening uh, in Thailand, then it was even more humbling uh, that perhaps what I say would have some wider influence and want to approach the things with uh, humility, knowing that many men, much better than myself, have analyzed and have... uh, given their whole lives, really, to such things. So, with that, um, last time, or the last couple of sessions, we were discussing the, um, the history of the Bible, and now specifically the canon uh, of Scripture, what's been known as the canon of Scripture. And as I said last time, I... I grew up in, I went to Bible college in, when was it, 1990, and learned what would be the common view of the day, I think I mentioned that, and the common view is that the Bible was handed down um, largely without error, but through... uh, Multiple copies, the Bible has been, although this language would not be used, the implication has been corrupted. So the texts are varying, differing textual lines and all of kinds of things. Uh, but what was said is you don't have to worry because it doesn't affect any major doctrine in the Christian faith. And that's basically the party line. And men that would believe and would preach and would even die for the scripture would have that view. That after the original manuscripts were written, then copies um, are not inspired. And that would be the that would be the orthodox view. And uh, I believe you can look that up for yourself and you will see that Inspiration only extends to the original autographs, and that's the language. That is what it's commonly believed. That's not your statement. No, no, that's what's commonly believed. Yeah. In uh, what's now called evangelicalism. And I, I'm not talking, and people that believe the Bible, and they do it uh, sincerely, and they, it doesn't lessen their confidence in the Bible. 
because I was, I was there. I, did, I had no lack of confidence in the Bible, even though I believed that. But logically, and for some, it does cast doubt in their minds about the scriptures, and it inadvertently undermines the authority of the scriptures. So if you get anything out of these sessions is that I am at least seeking um, to bolster your confidence in the scriptures and um, not to undermine your confidence. So... Anyway, I have been reading through a book that's about 330 pages on the subject, the canon of scripture. And um, even though it's tough slugging sometimes, it's, I actually, I could say I'm enjoying it. And I thought, how am I going to communicate this in a fashion that's going to be interesting and um, not getting too bogged down. So, yeah, I don't know if I'll achieve that, but uh, here we go. <laughs> uh, the word canon, um, I always think of a, that's what I think of canon, but actually the word is a, the Greek word, um, which is used of a, a measuring stick. Um, rod, you'll see in the scriptures that they, I think it was Ezekiel was using a rod to measure the temple. And on a, that, there's increments. And I think the word actually developed from there, the uh, measuring stick, and then lists, and from that developed the whole list of books that would be included in the canon, as well as the measuring stick uh, for how to how did they determine what should be in and what should be out? And it would seem that from the beginning, the way they determined that was the connection with the author or the prophet of God. And that's how it was almost intuitively known that these books were to be included and which books were to be excluded. In the relationship between the writing and who was writing it. So there wasn't really a sort of scientific way they looked at the writing or whatever, um, but as much as it was related to the, the author. And um, just as much as what was mentioned at the beginning, I believe we need to have faith that God was able to preserve his word down through the centuries. If he gave it by inspiration, then it would follow that he also kept it um, down. So what would be the point of giving an inspired text that was not going to last? <laughs> it would seem rather pointless. But the, the people of God down through the ages collected the books, and then as it unfolded down through history, especially in the Jewish nation. They kept it fastidiously. And, uh, but ironically, the Old Testament canon was more in dispute than the New Testament. 
The New Testament canon came together very quickly, within a hundred years. The Old Testament canon unfolded over a long period of time. So that would be the, the major differences. And thus you had other books that were kind of thrown into the mix uh, from the period of the intertest- intertestamental period. Uh, all of those, what's been known as the Septuagint Plus, uh, all those books were included at that time. Prior to that, there, there wasn't any dispute about what was to be included in the, the books um, that the people of God possessed. <clears throat> so once... Um, trying to just establish my thoughts. Um, There were several attestations to it. Um, I don't know if you've all heard of a man named Josephus. I have that book there, brother, for you. uh, I've wanted to read it myself, but I certainly haven't got there. But Josephus was a Jewish historian in Israel, who um, wrote about, uh, really, commentary on the scriptures, and then he wrote about the wars of the Jews and all kinds of things that happened in history up until his time, of course. And he um, also would have known what books were included in the, um, the canon of scripture. And he, by his time, that had been firmly established. Even when the Septuagint version, short for, um, or the short form is the LXX for 70, um, as it's become known. The, when the Septuagint version was translated in that time, I haven't been able to nail down a specific time as much as between 250 and 150. B.C. was when the, the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek. And that was, as you can see, God getting ready for the gospel going into the world. The uh, kingdom of Alexander the Great went all over the world and the Greek language went with it, Greek culture. And with that... The people of God were also dispersed throughout the world. Um, And they were more numerous in different places. And as you got out into the uh, Gentile world, the Jews would naturally lose their native tongue. And anybody who, like just among the Mennonites, they come from Mexico where everybody spoke Deech, you come here, how many generations until the children don't speak Deech? One or two, right? So your generate you speak Deech, brother? And you may or may not be passing that on to your children. Some do and some don't. And it isn't a matter of uh, some would decry as being unfaithful and this is the mother language. And, uh, but you can see how that would happen. You're in a different land and you're surrounded by English, and then it just kind of happens by accident. And that happened to the Jews. The Jews would be in 
the Gentile world outside of Palestine, and many of them naturally lost their Jewish tongue, Hebrew tongue, and they could no longer speak Hebrew. So when they would go into the synagogue, they would be, they could hear the Bible in Hebrew, but guess what? If you didn't understand it, then it wasn't much profit to you, and you would have somebody that would have to translate, which, yeah, that didn't seem to suffice. So the Bible, the Old Testament at that time, was translated into Greek. And at the time, um, the attitude towards that was such that it was the word of God. That even though, as you could discover, and I have uh, understood by others, the if I can use the word quality of the translation wouldn't necessarily come up to what we would consider our standards. In many places, you could see where, hmm, this kind of is quite different. And I had to investigate a few of them. One of them, which was very blaring, was uh, Jonah's prophecy, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. In the Septuagint version, it says, three days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Why it says that, I don't know. But there's many other scriptures like that that would cause people to lack confidence in uh, that translation. But that didn't seem to bother the apostles who used the Greek uh, and the people of God who used it down through the centuries. And it came full circle. I don't believe they were right. But they, there was men like Jerome who was safe end of uh, the 300s A.D., who believed that the Septuagint was the only um, inspired translation of the Bible, and he would have decried the Hebrew. And it went both ways, and the Hebrews, many of them, uh, began to hate and even curse the LXX version of the Bible because it was being so widely used in the world, and it was, in their minds... uh, They despised Christianity, and you could see why they would have that view. But um, it didn't start out that way, and we shall investigate some some things, how it kind of moved from that to uh, what we have now. We'll just quickly look at... uh, I think it's Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Because when Jesus came to the people of God, he came in under the law, and he would have been, uh, I believe, he would have learned Hebrew as a child, and then that would be the language which he would have spoken. In uh, Luke chapter 4 and verse 17, and there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet 
Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And we know the, uh, the scripture. And he closed the book in verse 20 and gave it to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. So he would have been reading from the Hebrew. And that's how it would have started. I don't think he would have been reading there in... uh, And there were Greek-speaking synagogues, but I believe that the Lord would have been speaking in Hebrew there. So he would have been reading from the Hebrew uh, scroll of Isaiah. It says there are book, um, there were books, and there were scrolls. They were probably both. And he was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the Jews were waiting for that. And it was promised in Daniel's uh, prophecy. And he was attesting to the, the scriptures. And he referred to over and over again when he would refer to the scriptures. And they were three major divisions in the scriptures. There was Moses, books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in every list, it's undisputed. There isn't any, uh, yeah, the order even is not even disputed. It just was the way it was. There is the prophets, Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, Kings. Um, there is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a book of the 12 prophets. So when the, they are very often not named, those 12 prophets, but we know what the, what we can call those things, the minor prophets. And then there was the writings, the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah were likened as to one book. So when the the Jews thought or mentioned the the canon of scripture, it was 24 books. And there was a dispute whether it should have been 22 or whether it should be 27. And we would say, well, there's supposed to be 39. But they would include several books together which would lessen the number although they were, um, they were all there, by, certainly by the time of Christ and most certainly by the time the Septuagint version was translated. Because all of the books of the Hebrew canon were included in that LXX version. Now, there were others added, but certainly all of the books that we would consider to be canonical in the Old Testament were included. Now, you may have heard that uh, the Hebrew canon ended with Second Chronicles. Why that is, I don't know. Perhaps it would have been, uh, since Ezra was commonly known as the chronicler, that his book appeared at the very end. In terms of the order, it was uh, laid out. Um, Daniel was just before him, Ezekiel was just before him, 
And it was only Haggai, Zechariah were after him. They are contemporary with him, I would say. So really, Ezra was the man at the end, even though chronologically the books are laid out. And Malachi being at the end, no date is given in Malachi, uh, but it is at the end of our canon for one reason, I think, and that's the last few lines um, speaking of John the Baptist coming and what he would do as the forerunner. And that's why I think Malachi is added at the end. And the way it's li- our Bible is laid out, that's why it is. But it would seem that the Lord Jesus, in understanding the way the Hebrew canon was at the time, that he, um, he quotes Second Chronicles as the end of the Hebrew Bible. And the evidence for that was, um, turn to Luke, Luke chapter 11 and verse 49. Because we find that the, the order of the Bible, the books of the Bible, is all over the map, down through the history of its uh, receiving. But at the time of the Lord... Uh, the second chronicles seems to be at the end. <clears throat> so Hebrew or Luke, pardon me, eleven and verse forty-nine. <clears throat> Therefore, also said the wisdom of God: I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. And then he names them, the two men, as kind of bookends on all the prophets that have ever been in the history of the world. And he goes on. It says, from the blood of Abel, where's Abel from? Which book of the Bible? Genesis. And then... Uh, to unto the blood, so unto from Abel unto uh, of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. So he likens that man as the the last prophet. But actually, you can read the book of Jeremiah, and there was a man that was killed, a prophet, 200 years after this man, who was, I believe, I forget exactly when he was killed. But, um, but canonically, he was the last prophet. But chronologically, he was not. But the Lord obviously the way the Hebrew canon was laid out at the time, that's how he summarizes the history of the prophets. And so that we would know that Second Chronicles was the last book in the Hebrew Bible. Probably because Ezra was the compiler, and that's how it uh, fell out. But certainly all the other books were included at the time when Ezra had written. <clears throat> And the the whole Old Testament is referred to as the law. 
even though the law technically referred to the first five books. In John 10, 34, the, uh, the whole of the Bible or the whole of the Old Testament was referred to uh, as the law. Turn to 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21. Just so that term, the law, isn't necessarily limited to the first five books. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 21 In the law it is written, with the men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak unto this people, yet for all I will, will they not hear, saith the Lord. That's quoted from Isaiah when he says the law, uh, in the law it is written. So Paul would have used the law in terms of the whole uh, of the Old Testament. As we mentioned before, Josephus, Josephus writing about end of the first century, I think, around there, um, because he recorded the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, so he would have been soon after that. He believed there were 22 books written from Moses to Artaxerxes. 465 to 423 B.C. Uh, He believed that those books were inspired and anything outside of that was not. (laughs) And uh, because there was a dispute, obviously, over what was inspired and what was not. So he wrote, um, because there were men writing that were prophets at that time, and when that prophetic... Age closed, so did, in his mind, the canon of Scripture. So that even after that, many other books were written in that period of time, around the time of Daniel, and then through that time in what's called the intertestamental period, when the Jews were in the land and they were waiting for Messiah, the, uh, it was still very much on God's time clock, Um, The whole history of redemption and everything was at stake, and the Jews being in the land was uh, his will. Um, And the Jews in that time frame were persecuted. And I don't know if you uh, have heard of a man called Antiochus. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but... um, he persecuted the Jews in that time period, but we'll mention him later. So, the canon of the Old Testament unfolded over time, perhaps we could say in three stages. <clears throat> First, there was the Law of Moses, and it was recognized right after his death. In Joshua 1.8, it said, All the books of this law... Uh, you shall keep, I'm summarizing uh, the text. And so the people of God, they recognize those books right away. And they would have had copies of them, and they would have read them uh, to the people. 
So there wasn't like there was, you know, 500 copies of the law running around either. It was, we're so used to multiple copies, uh, but for much of the history of the Bible, that hasn't been the case. And everything had to be hand-copied. And certainly, you know, if you were doing it today, probably it would be a woman that was copying it because their printing and handwriting is much neater. But incidentally, that has not been the case through history. Um, it's all been men doing it. There has been some women, but uh, mostly men doing it. The second set of books was recognized by Daniel in chapter 9 and verse 2. It says, when he understood by reading books, uh, that would be former prophets that have been prophesied in Israel. And those books would have come into Babylon and would have been available for him to read as a devout person and a prophet himself. So all of those books that came, he read the book of Jeremiah and about the duration of the Babylonian exile. And the third group of books would have been grouped together with Daniel, Ezekiel, Haggai, and Zechariah. And then Ezra, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, 1st, 2nd Chronicles would have been coming at the end of that, Ezra being the compiler of those scriptures. So that's how it kind of unfolded down through the history of the world. And the Jews came back to Palestine. They rebuilt the temple. Um, And then they were in the process of waiting for Messiah, as God's time clock uh, would have it. And they were in the land for uh, at least 200 and some years. And a man came on the scene named... uh, Two ways of saying his name, Antiochus or Antiochus. Um, He was a Greek man, and he tried to wipe out Judaism in Palestine. Not by necessarily killing everybody, but by putting pressure on the Jews by way of edict. He made it illegal to circumcise your child. The Jews still did that. He, uh, He wanted them to eat swine's flesh and to worship Zeus all of which they did not want to do, and there was a rebellion. And it was led by the father of Judas Maccabeus. You've heard that name, Maccabees. They were a family of Jews, and that they revolted against this man because he went into the temple, and I'm thinking the people at the time would have thought that this is the person that Daniel was speaking of the Antichrist. He went in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple in uh, Jerusalem. And he took many of the holy books from the temple and burned them because he wanted to wipe out. Uh, But as God would always have it, he uh, preserved his word down through those ages. And After the death of Antiochus in 164 B.C., it says, I think writing in uh, in Josephus, he uh, collected all the books. And you can read that in 2 Maccabees 2.13, where he collected all the books that had been dispersed. And 
you can imagine what they did. All of those books that would have uh, been in their charge, they would have had to recopy them. And just think of the whole approach to uh, understanding Bible translation and and uh, authority and inspiration and all of that. All of those books would have had to be, maybe they had, I don't know, it doesn't say, but they would have, the copies were drastically limited at one time and then they would have had to be recopied uh, from those things. That's why he collected them and uh, that says that had been lost in the war and that was the war with Antiochus. So right about that time, 160 BC, the LXX, the Septuagint version, rises on the scene. Outside of Palestine, but in, uh, in North Africa, I believe, just trying to think of the, of the city, Alexandria. And then the Septuagint version comes on the scene, uh, scattered Jews around the whole world, of which Alexandria was the center of uh, Jewish, Greek Jewish uh, learning and uh, population, and that's where reportedly the Septuagint version rose out of then. It was quickly dispersed around the world, so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the uh, Septuagint version of the Old Testament is 200 years old and it is well entrenched in uh, the diaspora that's the dispersion of the Jews uh, around the world and Philo who was a Jewish historian around 20 to AD 50 he said he had no he gave no evidence of accepting as canonical any apocryphal books. And we'll discuss what the apocrypha is. If you back there on the table, there is a King James Version printed with the apocrypha. And at that time, the apocryphal books, many of them coming out of that era of the Maccabees and that intertestamental period and the back even to with Daniel and even back to Jeremiah, uh, there was addendums or appendix to the book of Jeremiah. Baruch uh, had a book, apparently, and uh, there was a letter or an epistle of Jeremiah that all were lumped together, and they were called the Septuagint Plus, books that were added, but Philo in 20 B.C. gives no confidence that that was and so does Josephus, who was writing uh, almost 100 years later. So the Jews at the time, uh, they recognized only those books. And there would be other books, uh, some of the names, uh, Judith, Tobit, um, the Wisdom of uh, Sirach, I believe, Ecclesiasticus, um, the book of Baruch, the letter of Jeremiah, and the history of Susanna, not Vendries, and Bell the Dragon. Those were all, um, they were all in, was included in the Apocrypha. The, the whole history of Maccabees and all that uh, was included in that, in those books. But it was 
separated from the others in terms of its um, being recognized by the people of God as being Scripture. But it didn't stay that way. There was a fight between people that thought it should be in the canon and those who thought it should not be. And that went on for, I did my own math, until like 18, mid-1800s. That's why that Bible back there still has the Apocrypha in it. And apparently the King James was printed with the Apocrypha. And it was made law in 1644 that the Bible had to be... No, not 1644. 1615, pardon me. That the Bible had to be printed with the Apocrypha. So what men decided perhaps a thousand years before carried through many centuries until finally the period of the Reformation when it started to be dislodged and that even took... So from the mid... 1300s up until the mid-1800s until the Apocrypha was finally taken out of the Bible. It always was separated, but it was um, taken out of the Bible. And we'll discuss that later as to why. But that's yeah, sort of how things uh, developed. <clears throat> and then there was... Um, Something I hadn't really thought of much, but uh, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, there was in Judaism of the time, there was a division between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And so much so that you had here, the uh, Grecians were being neglected. So the Hebrews, Paul said, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he, he spoke Hebrew, and he was of that stock, whereas if you just spoke Greek, you, you're just kind of down the totem pole in, uh, in Judaism. But the, so much so that, yeah, they were being neglected. Stephen was a Hellenist. He would have been a Greek-speaking Jew. So when he quotes his from the Old Testament in chapter 7, as I understand, I haven't checked all these things out for myself, but it seems to be uh, the case from many sources that all of his quotes come from the Septuagint version of the Bible, which he would have read. And so, but they would have all been coming from those books that would be recognized by the Hebrews as being canonical. There wasn't, he wasn't quoting from Tobit and from... uh, uh, wisdom of Sirach and everything, as, you know, when you read those things, they're not like they're crazy stuff. It's just, you know, uh, akin to me writing commentaries on the Bible, and but they're not inspired. And that's how they should have been regarded. But they went back and forth, and then they were included um, somewhere 
when the Catholic rose, Church rose to power as being canonical for certain reasons, because there was one in particular doctrine that uh, was espoused in Maccabees 15, 2nd Maccabees, or 1st Maccabees, I can't remember which one, about praying for the dead, of which the Catholic Church built the whole doctrine of purgatory and praying for the dead and indulgences and all of those things. And that's why it was kept for so many centuries by the Catholic Church. For that reason. And then when the Reformation broke out, then the the Reformers eventually wanted this out of here. But it still took a long time. Uh, Because many of the works were historical, uh, but because of that reason... um, because there was an apparent doctrine coming from one of the books, then, uh, yeah, it wasn't until the Reformation, and the Catholic Church was wanted it in there, and the Reformers did not, and that's why it was eventually ousted. But it still took, uh, yeah, centuries until it was. <clears throat> Justin Martyr, um, who was... Um, an early Christian writer. It says he regards the Subtuagent version as the only reliable text of the Old Testament. <laughs> and uh, so he kind of went full circle the other way, whereas, um, and he says that it was read weekly in meetings of Christians along with the apostolic documents. So that's Justin Martyr in A.D. Uh, 160. Uh, Prior to or after him, there arose a man named Jerome, who was, apparently he was renowned for his uh, skills in Greek and in Hebrew eventually, and uh, I believe in Latin. And from that man arose a translation called the Latin Vulgate. And he's around the end, uh, 300s into 400 uh, A.D. And he said, uh, Jerome, that he did not regard the Apocrypha as canonical. And they were not to be uh, books, those that I read, are, are not to be used for establishing ecclesiastical doctrine. But that eventually was ignored, even though the Catholic Church would have taken up uh, Justin Mar- or not Justin Martyr, but Jerome as being one of their saints. Uh, they were uh, eventually he was his teaching was ignored, and so that's why uh, the Catholic Church kept all of those things for many hundreds of years. <clears throat> Uh, Melito of Sardis, I believe he would have been uh, an elder in Sardis. Having learned the accuracy of the books of the Old Covenant, I set them down and have sent them to you. I guess he's communicating with a friend. Uh, The five books of Moses, of which we know Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Uh, Four books of kingdoms. They called the, what we would know as 1st, 2nd Samuel, uh, 1st, 2nd Kings, uh, as kingdoms. Two books of Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs of Solomon, the Song of Psalms, uh, Songs, Ecclesiastes, Job, 
the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the 12, which would have been the 12 minor prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Esdras, which is what we would call Ezra, uh, Nehemiah. And that was 170. So Christians uh, knew what the Hebrew canon was, and that's, uh, they would have been familiar with the uh, LXX, which was their Bible. <clears throat> and then down as it unfolded through history, had Origen, I'm sure you've heard of him, he was a early Christian writer. He produced a work called the Hexbalah, which was a, uh, what would you call it, a parallel translation? Is that, is that a, uh, you, you know, you've got, he had the, uh, the Hebrew text first in a column, and then he would have had uh, the Hebrew transcribed into Greek letters. Don't quite know what that means. Um, and then he would have had Aquila's Greek version. So there were other men that wrote Greek versions of the Old Testament. Samasticus's Greek version, uh, who would have been of an early Christian. Then he had the Septuagint version, and then Theodosian's uh, Greek version. And he had them all in columns and comparing it with the Septuagint version. And he wrote this work out, I imagine, painstakingly, when you think about all of that, how he brought that all together. And it was used for... I think Jerome referred to it when he was translating the Bible into Latin um, some, whatever, 200 and some years later. What century was Origen? Uh, 185 to 254 A.D. Uh, was Origen's time. <clears throat> and again... The same general period as Justin uh, Yep, just after. Yeah, like... I think they would have been alive at the same time and uh, just after. And he lists all of the uh, canonical books that I just listed there. And he would have put First uh, and Second Maccabees as outside. I think there was four books of Maccabees outside the canon of Scripture. So they knew what was in and what was out at that time as they... Uh, had for many, many years. So we're coming back. The Old Testament canon is finished when the Jews come back into the land around that time, certainly by the death of Ezra, which would have been 400 and something B.C. The canon was closed. When all the prophets that were prophesying died, at that time, the canon was closed. Now, Malachi was prior to that. Malachi was, it doesn't even say when he was written. So, by that time, everybody knew that the canon of the Old Testament was closed. And it was waiting to be fulfilled. And so, um, it says, Origins list conformed to the Hebrew canon of the time. So, a early Christian... He knew what the Old Testament was comprised of. <clears throat> and then in 345 to 410, a man named Anastasius was the first to use the word canon in regard to the list of Old Testament books. And he excludes the Apocrypha at that time. So the Apocrypha had well been excluded 
from the Old Testament canon by this time. Now it was brought back in by the Roman Catholic Church, and we shall see why. And uh, then you had the Latin fathers. These were men that were writing, and they would have understood Greek, they would have understood Hebrew, and they would have been uh, native Latin speakers. And they wrote um, and extensively in uh, all of those languages. And Tertullian, you've heard of him, was an early um, Christian writer. And some of these men, if you look them up, had uh, apparent doctrines. So just because they recognized the Bible doesn't mean they were actually faithful Christians. So you have to, you know. But the whole study is based on the fact that these men recognized what the Bible was, even if they didn't uh, follow it or they weren't orthodox in their understanding of it. So Tertullian regarded all Old Testament books as canonical, as well as the Apocrypha. (laughs) That's where Tertullian was at. Um, And probably that's why it it began to be included in the Bible. There was a fight back and forth between the professed people of God, um, not necessarily the people of God, and the canonicity of what's known as the Apocrypha. Jerome, he was uh, A.D. 346 to 420, became a master of Greek and Latin and later Hebrew. In 405, he completed the Hebrew to Latin translation of the Old Testament, and that became the rule of thumb for the Catholic Church for 1,200 years. The only legitimate translation of the Bible was Latin for many years. And that's, that held for up until the time of the Reformation. So Jerome, what I, I don't know, I haven't read about his life and everything, but in terms of a, uh, um, his expertise in those languages was renowned for centuries. Imagine, he devoted his entire life to the study of language and then Bible translation. So he was, uh, and I didn't get the idea that he was unorthodox, but I haven't really studied that through. And Jerome's commentary was that he rejects apocryphal books from the canon and says, but he says they're profitable for reading which also held for many, 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 many centuries. that The people of God would, that's why they're included in that Bible back there. Um, but other men thought different for, for obvious reasons that we'll get into. Then you've heard of Augustine, so you're around 350 to 400 and he has 44 books. This is where the Apocrypha starts to come back into the Bible. A man like Augustine. And he, if you read Catholic literature, he's a champion in the Catholic Church. Augustine. Um, starting to have weird interpretations of Scripture. That's why he liked some of the, uh, 
the apocryphal books because it lent itself to allegorical interpretations of the Bible, etc. So he had 44 books of the, in the canon, in the Hebrew canon, or in the, the biblical Old Testament canon. And 27 books in the New. So that was, there's much less dispute, believe it or not, with the, uh, the books of the New Testament. Very little dispute. But uh, the Old Testament is not this, uh, so the same. So I won't go through that whole list, but he had all of those books which are apocryphal included as um, part of the Old Testament. Note, he ascribed divine inspiration to the Hebrew and the LXX, the Subtuagent version, even though they differ in some instances. They, uh, and you'll think, well, that doesn't make any sense. But to them, they didn't see the differences as negating one another. They held confidence in the Bible. And that's what I outlined at the very beginning. There wasn't this questioning of the Bible and saying, well, it's got mistakes here and errors there and everything else. And it develops an attitude. And one of superiority over the Bible, they didn't have that. They still reverenced the scriptures even though they could see themselves, there were some differences. But it didn't seem to bother them, nor did it even bother God, who was pleased to use the Septuagint translation in the New Testament. Could I make an interjection? Mm-hmm. Sure, yep. Yeah, there is all kinds of, uh, and it, I would say, modern day approach of scholarship uh, 
They're not saying this uh, literally, but they make everyone else that came before dummies. And <laughs> uh, in fact, some of these men will blow anybody out of the water today. And so these men were aware of what we would call mistakes. And they didn't think it such because they would have known things that, yeah, we just don't know. And uh, it's apparent that the Bible in the New Testament follows the Greek version of the Bible. And they didn't, they knew there was differences between the Hebrew and the Greek. And yet, uh, all that to say, they had confidence that this was the Word of God. And we're not, by saying that, endorsing some translations of the Bible that have mistakes, obvious errors. Um, but there is explanations that we perhaps are unaware of. But the general attitude was such that they believed that these, this was the very word of God. <clears throat> then we're coming to the the Reformation period, so you've got uh, Martin Luther. We know the Reformation started way back with, I think it's William Tyndale in 1684. I may be getting my dates wrong. I don't have all the lineage before me. But certainly in the 16th century, mid, uh, Luther started his uh, Reformation he challenged the doctrine of indulgences and of purgatory and of prayers for the dead, which he knew were wrong from Scripture. But uh, then the Catholic Church pushed back and said, well, this is in the Bible. It's in 2 Maccabees 12.45. And it's like, mm, well, that shouldn't be. And then there was this big fight between the Catholic Church and the Reformers about the now there's a something at stake here. We, now it's really pushed to the forefront. Um, even though Jerome did not accept apocryphal books for ecclesiastical doctrine that wormed its way into the church and was there for many centuries. And indulgences was a way that the Catholic Church raised money for the building of their empire. Uh, in fact, I think St. Peter's Basilica was built on the backs of the whole indulgent system. That's giving money for the priest and the church to, to uh, say masses for your dead relatives. And you would pray for dead people that were supposedly in purgatory that they could be released from that. And that persisted for many generations, many centuries as well, that whole thing. But the reformers pushed back on that. Um, and because it was taken out of the apocrypha, that's where they went after it. So Luther included the Apocrypha in Appendix of the Old Testament in 1534. So even though he knew that out of it came that false doctrine, he still kept it in the Bible. This is how much it just hung on. And uh, he wrote the Apocrypha, and then in his printing of the Bible, he wrote the Apocrypha, books which are not to be held equal to Holy Scripture, but are useful and good to read. That was his take on the when he printed the Bible in the mid-1500s. Zwingli's Zurich Bible excluded the Apocrypha enti- entirely. And they were in a different part of, uh, I think, in Switzerland? Zwingli? 
Yeah, Storm's reading a book on the history of the Reformation. Tyndale followed the same course in regard to the Apocrypha 1534. Coverdale's English Bible books were taken out of the canon were uh, 3rd and 4th Esdras, or Ezra, along with Baruch. Sorry, Baruch was taken out of the canon. And uh, so there was this fight back and forth at that time. The Great Bible of 1539 followed the lead of the Coverdale Bible, but renamed the Apocrypha as Hagiographa. That means holy writings. And thus the whole Apocrypha thing was just, Hank was kind of trying to get rid of Lot. You know, he just, everywhere Abram, Lot went with him. And he, <laughs> he just, you know, you read it in the text all the time. And it always, it just was hanging on. The Council of Trent came along right at that time to answer this whole Reformation thing. And they upheld the canonical status of the Apocrypha, no wonder, pronouncing an anathema on all dissenters. So you were... Cursed if you didn't believe the Apocrypha was the word of God. So the Catholic Church pushing back. They still had lots of power in the world. Uh, they were starting to wane. They reached probably the apex in the mid, what's called the Middle Ages, where the Pope was the king of the world. And thus the fulfilling of that in the book of Revelation. The Pope being the ultimate picture of the Antichrist rising up in the church of God declaring himself that he is God. That happened in the history of the Catholic Church. And then you had the uh, Elizabethan time. This is when we start to cheer. The Holy Scripture contains all things necessary for life and salvation. Those books which have never been in doubt are as follows. And then they describe the what we would see, even the order of books, follows what we would have in our Bible. And so that's where they were at in 1562, pushing back against the Catholic Church. And then they listed all the apocryphal books, uh, third and fourth uh, Ezra, Tobias, Judith, the appendix of Esther, apparently there was an attachment to Esther, the book of wisdom of the son of Sirach, Baruch, uh, Song of the Three Children, that thinks Daniel's three friends were included in the Apocrypha. The Story of Susanna, not Vendries. Uh, the Story of Bel the Dragon, Prayer of Manasseh, and the First and Second Maccabees. And I think there were, there were many others as well. You just read all kinds of things. But those books were excluded from the canon of scripture. And that fight went back and forth, started way back with, uh, what was Tertullian? And that went back and forth for, when was Tertullian? One, second century, all the way up to 15 something, and it didn't end there. It's still, as you can see, back on the table, the King James Version there printed with the Apocrypha in 1845. But soon thereafter, it, it came to an end. Uh, soon thereafter, so much so that you could, I don't even know if there is a King James Version today printed with the Apocrypha in it. Perhaps there is, I just don't know about it. <clears throat> then we have the authorized version of 1611. Included a version of the Apocrypha. It became illegal to print the Bible in 1615 without the Apocrypha. 
But the Puritans were increasing their objection to its inclusion in the Bible, and they just stepped that up. So much so, by 1626 and onward, copies of the authorized version were printed without the Apocrypha, even in England. So they were pushing back against that hard, and they were successful. I believe by 1644, Puritan pressure led to this declaration. The books commonly called Apocrypha are not being of divine inspiration, are of no part of the canon of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of other than other human writings. Declaration by the British Parliament or the Church in 1644. But it hung on, uh, as we know, by the mid-1800s, the Apocrypha finally fell out of the production with the Bible. And there's the evidence at the back. It still was hanging on by 1845. So that is the history of it. That you can see why it was kept for many years. And, but the Puritans pushed back hard because they knew that this was uh, justification for the teaching about prayers for the dead, indulgences, and purgatory, of which the Catholic Church uh, held for many, many centuries. I think it has recently, in my lifetime, kind of fallen out of popularity. My uncle said, the best you can hope for as a Catholic is purgatory. I don't even hear that today. When you go to a Catholic funeral, the person's in heaven... And then you pray for their souls. So it's kind of like have your cake and eat it too. But it's very rare to hear the average Catholic even talk about that anymore. That's my experience. But So, yeah, there, that's the whole history of the Old Testament and that fight between the Apocrypha and the, uh, the books So the books of the the Old Testament were not disputed. It was the other books that were. So we can see how God orchestrated that down uh, through history. And as we had learned last time, the Jews were fastidious in their copying of the scripture uh, with very few variations in the text itself. Are there any questions? Because I don't think this is a good place to stop. I don't think I'm going to get into the New Testament. Um, yeah, I mean, we'd be here, and I'm, I'm, only, I'm not done the New Testament yet. So I figured that was a big enough bite out of the elephant uh, to, yeah, I don't know how you feel, but it was like you could get information indigestion by now. But... Uh, But I found it to be uh, enlightening and inspiring. And and just to think that you have a Bible in your hand is amazing. When saints for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years didn't have that. um, Now, unfortunately, as lent to the uh, laxing or growing weak in our memories, because all the the scripture you would have gotten was when you went to church, or in the 
the uh, Jewish synagogue setting, they would read and you had to retain that. And that's how you, that's the scripture you would have. Because you wouldn't have a copy at your house, personal copy. Only rich people had that. Very important people, uh, priestly people would have their own copy and it wouldn't even be kept at their house. So I, it's amazing how much you would memorize because you just didn't have it. And you would memorize whole tracts of scripture. Imagine memorizing Psalm 119. That's why they had it in the Hebrew alphabet. So you could trigger your memory and then you would... They, our memories are way underutilized. I mean, I don't even know if I know Martin's phone number. Why? Because I go to the speed dial and I see Martin's name. And I, you know, sometimes you even forget your own phone numbers. I've had people that, what's your phone number? Oh, I don't know. I'll check my phone. Like, that's how lax our memories have become. And we, can, we have to fight the other way. To, uh, and part of that is because we... Well, if you don't have this scripture memorized, guess what? You could just, you know, I, I got my pocket Bible, I got my, I got my reading Bible, and then I got my um, studying Bible with all the marks in it, at least I do. And, you know, I've got five or six Bibles. And then there's a bunch more down on the shelf that I don't use anymore because they're different translations. So um, that has lent to us in this generation... The blessing has been turned into, yeah, our downfall in our minds. We don't retain the word of God uh, in our minds as much because we, yeah, because we have our, our very own copy uh, of the scriptures. And I know that we don't want to reverence the Bible like we do God, but I think we could do better in Christian circles when I see, you know, people's Bibles kicking around on the floor of their car, their mu- Muslims would absolutely, f- like, they would just flip right out. Like, how you treat the Bible with such, dis- in their minds, disrespect. I think we can do better. I don't think it was just kicking around in the bottom of the synagogue drawer, you know, up at the front. It was placed, and the Jews, even today, they reverence the, the Bible. They reverence the Old Testament. And, yeah, we talked about that the last time in their copying of the Bible. Um, so we could do better in those things. And, and being thankful for the scriptures that we have. And, yeah, committing it more to memory. Reading it over and over and over again. Uh, I think it was uh, one of those men in England. Oh, I can't even remember his name. The guy who had the orphanage. George Mueller Mueller reportedly read the Bible 200 times in his life. I'm, yeah, I'm probably about seven or eight times. I mean, notwithstanding the times I've read over and over again different books, but in terms of reading through the whole Bible, we we could do a lot better. And, uh, yeah, so all the reason to pull in our lives, cut out those things which are not needful, even those things which are important, and devote ourselves to the, the learning and the study and the uh, commitment.
committing to memory. So much so that you can, you know, okay, I know where this passage is. And even if you don't have it memorized, and I can go right there and it's just available to us. We need to just continually go there with our children and with us as adults. Because there is a great uh, responsibility upon us. It wasn't the privilege of many uh, generations before who would, they just wouldn't have a copy of the Bible. And you could understand how much that would be longed for. And uh, even in this generation, Chinese Christians with no copy of the Bible, there'd be one copy in the church. And you can imagine how they would regard that copy. It would be, yeah. It'd be something if you could just sit down and read it. And you would only hear it in church. So we have a great heritage, brethren. A great uh, treasure. And let's uh, treat it as such. Well, Aaron, would you pray for us, brother?